Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the show where America is the star and the American people. And always, we're looking for your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Our listeners' stories are some of our favorites. We are about to hear next the story of Hollywood legend Steve McQueen, told by a real-life Steve McQueen expert. Let's take a listen. My name is Marshall Terrell, and I'm the author of approximately 30 books, and I've written seven on actor Steve McQueen. Uh, Steve McQueen has held a fascination for me because I remember watching him on television and on film because he was my dad's favorite actor. And so whenever there was a a movie on television, my dad would say, hey, McQueen's on, let's go watch it. Or if a McQueen movie was out, he'd say, hey, there's a McQueen movie out. He'd take me out of school and then we'd go watch that. So that was kind of our bonding experience. And um, as I've traveled around the world now talking about Steve McQueen, I've discovered that I'm not the only one. And that's how Steve McQueen, I think, has been passed on down to the generations. It's, it's not unlike the Beatles or Elvis Presley, where these parents and grandparents now have such a love for this person that they want to pass that on to their children and their grandchildren. And somehow, miraculously, they get filtered down to, to the next generation. So Steve McQueen, there's a lot of that with him. And I think... One of the reasons for that is because his look is so timeless, you know, and that he looks like uh, if he stepped out of the um, screen today that he could fit in with society today because he had that that great looking haircut, that great physique. He didn't look like he belonged in any sort of time period. And then, of course, there are his films, which he was, I've always said he's kind of the the, uh, the template for the modern day movie star. You know, he didn't... Um, 
he, he sort of had his own code and uh, people pick that up and they want to apply that to themselves. And so as the result of following his own instincts as an actor, Steve McQueen became the biggest movie star of the 1960s and 70s. From 1963 to 1975, he was the number one box office uh, movie star in the world. Steve McQueen was born on March 24th, 1930, a couple of months right after the, the Great Depression hit. The, the, there was the Wall Street crash in 1929. And so he grew up right in the middle of that. And both of his parents were alcoholics. He didn't really know his father because he walked out on his wife and his child uh, after six months. His mother, Julian, um, was what they called a, a flapper. Uh, she was a, kind of a good time girl. She was 17 years old when she gave birth to Steve and you know was just a kid herself. And so Steve was uh, raised by his maternal grandparents at first, Victor and Lillian Crawford. Uh, when he was about four, five years old, uh, you know, they had lost pretty much everything as a result of the Great Depression. And so they moved to Slater, Missouri, where Steve's granduncle, uh, Claude, had a hog farm. And so um, sometimes Julian would come, sometimes she'd be off in California, sometimes she'd come and take him because she felt guilty and bring him out to California and then expose him to um, stepfathers who didn't necessarily have his best interest at heart. Sometimes they were abusive. Most, almost always they were alcoholics. And so um, he was just raised in this environment where he was, didn't really have a home. Turned out he was dyslexic and couldn't read well. And so, um, you know, he was just one of those kids who fell through the crack. When Steve McQueen lived in Los Angeles, he got into a lot of trouble. I'm, we're talking like between the ages of nine and 13, 14. Um, he got involved in a street gang. He talked about committing some robberies and stealing hubcaps, playing pool at pool halls and hustling people for money. And then there was a circus, a traveling circus that came to town and um, he had decided that um, he was going to join it. And he even tried boxing for a little bit. And once he said he got knocked flat on his duff, he gave that up. So when Steve got older, his mother had married a, a gentleman by the name of Hal Berry, and this was in Los Angeles. And so um, Hal was an alcoholic and uh, you know he beat Steve. I don't know how frequently, but Steve did talk about that in interviews. And one time he talked about him getting beat up and getting thrown in a closet. And then one time getting beat up and thro being thrown down a set of stairs. And so Steve basically said, if you touch me again, I'm going to kill you. And so it turns out that his mother had him declared incorrigible and took him to the uh, Boys Republic in Chino, which was basically a reformatory school. And so that's where Steve started getting his act together, started learning some discipline, started um, understanding the fact that he could have a life, um, a life of his choosing if he decided uh, to clean up his act. And so they gave him a pretty good education, but the, the furthest he got was in ninth grade. It wasn't until he decided to join the Marines that he was gonna quote unquote become a real man. Um, well, Steve McQueen joined the Marines in 1947 and he needed the permission of his mother to do it because he was 17. 
Um, and the, and the, the, the kind thing about that was he actually sent a portion of his uh, paycheck to his mother, even though she wasn't uh, really good to him, but she did, she did sign that paperwork for him. And in the beginning, it did not make him a man, but what he found out was when he was in the Marines, um, he couldn't get away with some of the, the shenanigans that he pulled. And you've been listening to Marshall Terrell tell the story of actor Steve McQueen, and what a difficult start to a life. You can't get dealt a much worse hand than McQueen got dealt as a young man. But the Marine Corps and Reform School were the steps towards at least an attempt to straighten his life. When we come back, more of the life story of actor Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. Habib here, the host of Our American Stories. Every day on this show, we're bringing inspiring stories from across this great country. Stories from our big cities and small towns. But we truly can't do this show without you. Our stories are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. If you love what you hear, go to OurAmericanStories.com and click the donate button. Give a little, give a lot. Go to OurAmericanStories.com and give. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. (laughs) I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we continue with our American stories and the story of actor Steve McQueen. Let's pick up where we last left off with author Marshall Terrell. He went AWOL a couple of times. That was to be with some girlfriends who lived uh, 
you know, in another state. Part of his punishment was that he had to clean out the hull of the ship, which was in the naval yard in Washington, D.C. They had to clean out the pipes, which was filled with asbestos. Everything in that ship was filled with asbestos. They didn't have any mask on. So he breathed that in. That was in December of 1949. And he was diagnosed with cancer in December of 1979. So it was almost exactly 30 years, which is what they say that mesothelioma takes to, to fully form. The other thing that he did that, that a sergeant told me uh, who served with him was that uh, he offered to clean the, latri the latrines in the morning and, in, and the sergeant said no one ever ever offered to clean the latrines so what he said was McQueen could sleep an extra hour in if he he would wake up and then he would go sleep inside the, the bathroom area you know put his coat down and then um, sleep for an extra hour or two which was considered gold in the marines and so but he, he would also do his duty as well but he said those were the kinds of things that mcqueen would pull you know he couldn't be conformed fully um but you know he conformed enough to where he felt like the marines uh, had given him a life of discipline well St steve mcqueen was a bit aimless after uh joining the marines he drove a taxi cab and was a mechanic for a, a company in washington dc as soon as he got out because that's where he was discharged was in uh, DC and then he worked his way up to New York City where he felt quote-unquote where the action was he was selling encyclopedias door-to-door and he did stuff like he'd steal like a, a, a shower nozzle in a large department store and then he'd bring it back for a return and cash that in and another buddy of mine told me that uh, he would walk around the street offering uh, single ladies a tour of the city and then they would buy him a meal or give him a tip so he was a real hustler you know he did anything that he could uh, to survive those were those were really tough days that's what they what I call the salad days and then what happened was he was dating a dancer who said you know Steve you're really kind of kooky and strange you would be perfect for acting and he discovered under the GI Bill, he qualified for, for acting or any sort of college if he wanted to do that. So he gave acting a shot. So Steve McQueen started taking uh, acting lessons at Sanford Meisner's Neighborhood Playhouse. And Meisner was the perfect acting coach for him because um, he was soft with people. And Steve was very, very insecure. And so, you know, for him, being an actor meant being vulnerable. He truly got into it because he knew that that's where women were. But once it was discovered he had this great raw talent and was given great positive feedback, he really um, fed on that. And so then that's when he really started trying. And then, you know, once once those skills were honed, and, and trust me, it took, took several years for him to perfect the McQueen persona. Right around the time that he uh, enters the actor's studio is when he starts to get, you know, a little mojo uh, with his career. He gets a Broadway play. He's not very good in it, but he's starting in a Broadway play, which gives him the courage to ask out his first wife, uh, Neil Adams, who's a very successful Broadway dancer. And they start dating and they really hit it off. But his success does not match hers. And so that, that that kind of drives him crazy. At the time, she was making $50,000 a year. He was making 4000 And the fact that his wife was more successful than him, given that he was a male chauvinist, drove him crazy. 
But some of the productions that he was getting were kind of just independent films. Like he he, he got a job as a $17 a day extra in, in the movie Somebody Up There Likes Me, starring Paul Newman. He did a movie, a B movie called Never Love a Stranger, Great St. Louis Bank Robbery, and of course The Blob, which was like the B movie picture of all B movie pictures. So The Blob was made, I think it started production in August of 1957, and it was a very, very um, a low-grade B-movie about this uh, um, blob that comes from outer space and starts uh, becoming bigger and swallowing people up. And at the time, it was considered you know, very high-tech, but uh, the, the interesting thing was, it was uh, developed by a production company called Good News Productions, which was a Christian-based film company. And so with The Blob, they partnered with Jack Harris to make a mainstream movie uh, to tap into to some of that money to, to make more Christian films. And near the end of filming, Russell Doughton, who later went on to produce a movie called uh, Thief in the Night. He went on to produce a lot of Christian films, but Thief in the Night was his big one. He said there was a, uh, a week of overruns in which McQueen would have to, uh, you know, either dub in a part or react a scene. And McQueen was basically, basically said nothing doing. And so Doughton kind of sat him down and, and talked to him about his attitude in life and um, gave him a Bible because he knew that McQueen, after this production, was headed to Hollywood. And he, you know, he, he said, you know, Steve was heading out into the wilderness and he wanted to make sure that he gave him a Bible. And Doughton actually went out to Hollywood a couple months later and he said he bumped into McQueen and McQueen said to him, hey, I still got your Bible. When Steve McQueen uh, first got to Hollywood, you know, he, he, he made a, a strike almost right away. And the reason for that was because Again, Neil had translated her star power from Broadway to Hollywood, and so she was starting to really get a lot of attention. And so McQueen was following her to the studios, and um, you know, one of the qu famous quotes that he gives was, uh, you know, I was starting to get elbowed by the makeup people and the assistant directors, and they were calling me Mr. Adams. And he said, I, I came to realize at that moment in time, I better become famous real fast because he did not want to um, follow in her footsteps. So he was driving her crazy. And so she called her uh, manager, Hilly Elkins, and said, Hilly, you got to get him a job. He's driving me absolutely bonkers. So the first job that Hilly gets, uh, Steve McQueen, is in a series called Trackdown. And uh, somebody on that show saw Steve McQueen and said, who is that guy? And um, so they, they said, yeah, just some young unknown actor named Steve McQueen. And they said, well, we want, we want him for something else. And so that was for a TV series called Wanna Dead or Alive. And Wanna Dead or Alive, believe it or not, was a, a big hit when it uh, debuted in September of 1958. And it had the, it, it, luckily for him, the, the blob had just previewed just at that time. Uh, it had finally come out in theaters, so he had, he had the double whammy of The Blob and One and Dead or Alive appearing at the same time. And you've been listening to author Marshall Terrell tell the story of Steve McQueen. And by the way, you can learn so much more 
by going to a local bookstore and buying this book, or heck, uh, go to Amazon or The Usual Suspects, wherever you get your books. Steve McQueen, The Salvation of an American Icon by Greg Laurie and Marshall Terrell. And Terrell has written so many books about this subject that we chose to interview him and to have him tell the story of McQueen. And what a story it is. I mean, imagine that his entire career almost is predicated on a girl he's dating saying, you're kooky and strange. You'd be a good actor. And of course, he took that as a a compliment or a call to action, and he gave it a shot, and he is very lucky that he was in New York City and ended up with the great Sanford Meisner, one of the great acting teachers, coaches of all time, who did indeed have a gentle touch. And of course, actors are the most insecure people in the world, as you can imagine. And having a man like that tutor and mentor him, and then to end up at the actor's studio around some of the great actors of his generation, studying his craft to become indeed what he was, which was one of the great American actors, not just an icon, but a real talent. When we come back, more of the untold story of Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Steve McQueen. And my goodness, go back and watch his movies, and they're so good. And and the range and depth and breadth of his talent is remarkable. The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, Bullet, which, by the way, features the greatest car chase in American history, one of the first great ones, too. And I think his best performance, alongside Faye Dunaway, The Thomas Crown Affair, a slow, cool, burning, brilliant brilliant movie. Now let's return to Marshall Terrell to continue the story of actor Steve McQueen. In the summers when he was on hiatus from One Dead or Alive, he did a couple of different movies. He did Never So Few for John Sturgis. Um, That part was originally written for Sammy Davis Jr. 
who had said something disparaging about Frank Sinatra on radio, and then he was out and Steve McQueen was in. So, um, John Sturgis liked him very much, promised him for his next movie, he'd, he'd have him in, in, in the role. That next movie was The Magnificent Seven, which again was, was filmed on hiatus uh, the following year. And um, he was he starred opposite Yul Brenner, and of course he, he co-starred with a, a couple of his friends, Charles Bronson, James Coburn, and a few other young upstarts. But McQueen wanted to uh, upset the apple cart, and you know he was second build, and um, but and, J and Yul, Yul Brenner was the star. But you know Steve McQueen emerged as the star because he had planned and plotted to uh, upstage Yul Brenner whenever he could. So one of the acting choices McQueen made to upstage Brenner, there was a scene where they're, they're talking to each other and McQueen is walking back and forth. And, and Brenner, because he was a little bit smaller, had built a little sand pile to stand on. So as McQueen's walking by and going past him in each scene, he's kicking away a little bit of the sand to the point where real Brenner is sinking every every time that McQueen kicks the sand. So that was the kind of shenanigans that he pulled. So from that performance, a lot of the movie producers started to take note of this young guy. And so a few years later, John Sturgis asked him to star in The Great Escape. That's when Steve McQueen turned into a household name. And you know, when he read the script, he said, everybody's got a little bit, I don't have a bit, you know, Garner, had um, a turtleneck, and uh, you know James Coburn had his suitcase, and Sturgis, you know, was saying, "Don't worry about it, Steve. Just like Magnificent Seven, you know, he promised them all the camera time, uh, as opposed to lines, that he'd take care of them." So when they get over to Germany, McQueen's attitude really starts to sour, and um, he's not getting the attention that he wants, especially regarding his part. So he walked off the set for six weeks. And so what McQueen asked for was another writer to come in and start working on his part again. And from that rewrite, they started developing the bit about throwing the ball up against the cell in solitary confinement, the motorcycle chase, and, and these other parts that would make that character Steve McQueen. And as it turned out, it worked perfectly because McQueen was the breakout star of that movie. And that was the one movie that catapulted him from TV stardom to film stardom. And he was the first actual actor to do that in that era. So he was the very first that catapulted from television to film. After The Great Escape, McQueen becomes, uh, you know, the new big star in Hollywood. And he has this attitude of, you know, I'm going to taste all the goodies that Hollywood has to offer. He bought a beautiful home in Brentwood, bought a house in Palm Springs, had tons of uh, sports cars, dated a lot of pretty ladies behind his wife's back. He hung out on the Sunset Strip. He had a booth at the Whiskey A Go-Go because he knew the owner. And so again, he was going to sample all the, all the goodies that Hollywood had to offer to him. After The Great Escape, McQueen made a, a couple of, uh, he made like a trio of movies that didn't really go anywhere. So his next big film which started a, a, a streak that made him the biggest movie star of the 60s. And uh, he did five back-to-back -back hits in a row, and that was The Cincinnati Kid, Nevada Smith, The Sand Pebbles, Thomas Crown Affair, 
and then it all ends with Bullet, which was his biggest hit uh, in the 60s and made him a cultural icon and superstar. So he was no longer just a movie star. He was, you know, in that rarefied era of superstars. With McQueen now on this big role, almost every movie offer came his way, with the exception of a movie called The Thomas Crown Affair. And that was uh, because Steve McQueen was always kind of played these blue collar types. And Thomas Crown was a suave, debonair, a white collar bank robber. And it was originally offered to Sean Connery, uh, offered to him right after he made his last James Bond movie, uh, You Only Live Twice. And um, for whatever reasons, Sean Connery decided uh, not to take it. Then they start, they talked to Rock Hudson, then they talked to a few other people. And so Neil McQueen, his wife, was very, very good for him in terms of his career and picking out movies that she thought would benefit him. And so Thomas Crown, no one had taken up that offer yet. It was directed by Norman Jewison, who directed McQueen and the Cincinnati Kid. And so one day he, she's talking to McQueen and she said, you know, it's really a, a darn shame that uh, Norman doesn't want you. And he goes, what are you talking about? She said, the Thomas Crown affair. He doesn't want you for it. So she was using some, some sort of reverse psychology on him. She said, yeah, you know, they've talked to Sean Connery, Rock Hudson, everybody in town but you. And so McQueen puffed out his chest and uh, decided, okay, I'm gonna call Norman. And Norman told him, you're not right for it, Steve. You know, you, you look down at your feet, you shuffle your shoes. Thomas Crown's the kind of person that will look you in the eye and tell you a lie. He goes, are you capable of doing that? So McQueen told him that basically, you know, he was ready for the part. He was ready to do it. And it made sense for Jewison because Steve McQueen was a major, major box office star. So if he wanted to get his movie greenlit, it would only make sense to have Steve McQueen in the starring role. So after Bullet becomes this major, major Hollywood hit, it was definitely the, the biggest hit of 1968. It was during that period of time where he really started getting into uh, cocaine. He started getting into orgies. And um, a lot of that downfall had to do with the fact that uh, the Manson family had killed two of his friends, uh, Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring. Sharon Tate was somebody that Steve McQueen said on his deathbed was a girlfriend and that Jay Sebring, who cut his hair, was uh, his best friend. In Neil McQueen's book, she says the night before the murders that uh, Jay Sebring had uh, come over to their house and given Steve a, a trim and asked him if he would um, come to the house the next night and ba help babysit Sharon because she was getting ready to have a child and her husband Roman Plansky was out of town. And so, you know, she wanted people around just to keep her company. And so um, the next night, according to Neil, Steve McQueen was on his motorcycle ready to go over to the house and saw either some young girl hitchhiking or saw, rec saw somebody he recognized and spent the evening with her and avoided that whole massacre because he was with somebody else. And then later on, it turned out there was a, a report in the paper that Susan Atkins had claimed to someone that uh, the Mansons had a death list uh, of celebrities that they were going to kill, and Steve McQueen was one of them on that list. 
And you've been listening to author Marshall Terrell tell the riveting story of Steve McQueen and how he barely escapes being at the Roman Polanski home where the Mansons did their devilish work and escaped death by a narrow chance. When we come back, more of the life of Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. And we continue with Our American Stories and with author Marshall Terrell. Let's continue with the story of actor Steve McQueen. Here's Marshall. So at the end of the 1960s, Steve McQueen's life is really becoming a mess. He gets a divorce from his wife. His company goes bankrupt, and he also severs his relationship with his longtime agent who, who, you know, who helped him become very, very successful. Despite the fact that, uh, you know, he carried on endless affairs, uh, he was actually, believe it or not, a family man. He cared very deeply. He loved his wife, and he loved his two children, Chad and Terry. And um, he, uh, he came from a broken home, and it horrified him that these two children would now, quote unquote, come from a broken home. It, that, that's what makes him so interesting um, and complex is because, you know, he, on the one hand, he, he couldn't help himself with women, but on the other hand, he was a family man. And so uh, that, that family was now broken up because of him. By 1972, Steve McQueen's career is on the upswing again. And he had the one, two, three punch of the getaway. Papillon was extremely successful and The Towering Inferno was the most successful film of all time with a box office gross over $300 million in 1975 dollars. Up to Jaws, which eclipsed it six months later. He found love again in a, a young model by the name of Barbara Minty. So she created that new spark in him. So. He decided that he was going to um, move to Santa Paula, California, which is about 60 miles north of Los Angeles. And one of the reasons why he did that was because he wanted to fly antique airplanes. And at the time, that was the antique 
airplane capital of the world. And uh, he bought a, a ranch and he was living in a town that really reminded him of the home that he grew up in as a kid, uh, Slater, Missouri. And, you know, he was happy again. And one of the most interesting things that happened in Santa Paula was the, the gentleman that taught him how to fly, his name was Sammy Mason, was a former World War II pilot. And after a couple of lessons, uh, Steve picked up on his spirit or his vibe, whatever you would want to call it. And he said, Sammy, there's something different about you. I can't quite put my finger on it. And Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a born again Christian. And so rather than that turning off Steve, Steve was intrigued. And here's Pastor Leonard Duet talking about his relationship with Steve McQueen. Sam wasn't the preacher type. He was rock solid in his faith and he lived the life. He saw in Sam someone that uh, he could trust, someone who genuinely cared about him. Whole families just embraced him. And so he saw in them a quality of life. You know, they, they prayed over their meals. Uh, they were respectful, they were supportive, they were encouraging. They, they were just rock solid. He realizes there's something a whole lot better than I have ever experienced. So, so when, they, uh, when they invited him to church, that was no big deal. He was ready. I don't know what he thought he was going to experience, but he trusted them. And when he started coming, he just felt at home. The people didn't bother him. You know, they weren't asking for autographs or anything. The Mason family always sat up in the balcony. They had six children and he just sat with the whole family. He, I think he'd been coming about three or four months, but uh, one Sunday I was out in the foyer greeting the people and I felt someone tap me on the shoulder and I turned around and he said, uh, Pastor, I'm uh, Steve McQueen. And I said, oh, hi, Steve. I heard that you were worshiping with us. And he said, um, I wonder if you'd have some time one of these days where we could get together and talk. And uh, we met at the old, the old Santa Paula Airport restaurant. We met, oh, probably about two o'clock in the afternoon, so there wouldn't be anybody there. He had a lot of questions about Christ, but uh, he also wanted to know, can, can you trust the Bible? Is it accurate? Is it reliable? You know, is it gonna make me a, a kook? He wanted to know what difference would Christ make in a person's life. Is it going to be more of what I'm used to? Or is Christ really going to bring about a change that I will be happy with? So those, those are the kind of questions, not only about Christ personally, but uh, you know the, the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away and all things become new. And so Steve really wanted to know, is this real? So, um, during that two hours at the airport, when he's firing one question after another, finally, he just sort of sat back and he says, well, that's all my questions. And I just uh, sort of smiled and said, well, Steve, I have just one. And he grinned, he says, you want to know if I'm a born again Christian, don't you? And I said, well, that's really what's important to me. So, uh, he said, you remember the Sunday, and it was probably maybe three or four weeks before, 
Anyway, he said, on that particular Sunday, at the end of the service, you gave an opportunity for, for us to receive Christ. And he said, that's when I invited Christ into my life and was born again. And he, he told me at that particular point in time, he says, Leonard, I don't know hardly anything about the Bible. So I'm going to be counting upon you. He says, could we meet on a regular basis? And uh, so we set up a program where we met once a week and we would spend a full hour in Bible study and, and prayer. And we would do it out at his, his acreage or his ranch. After he told me about the, about the tumor and about the cancer, we just sat there for you know, just a few minutes. And finally, I, I just said, Steve, how do you feel about this? What's going through your mind now? And he says, well, now that I'm a Christian, I really do want to live because I, I'd like to share what I have found with others. But if I don't make it, I know where I'm going. I would say in his conversion, that Steve discovered that being a Christian is far more than being religious. It's a relationship. And he, he loved that relationship. And he was growing. He was growing in that relationship. And that meant, it just, it, that, that became his life. And here's Steve McQueen in a private audio tape about two weeks before his death talking about his personal faith. When you mentioned earlier about a clue in my life, well, that clue was playing the Lord in my life. I'd like to think that I'm a good Christian. I'm trying to be, it's not easy. Change some people's lives when we come out. But I know the Lord, what I have to offer, what's happened to me. I know now I've changed a lot. I used to be Marvin Mosco, and now my body's gone and broken but my spirit isn't blessing. People always ask me, did Steve McQueen really become a Christian or did he do it to save himself? While other people say, well, you know, Steve wasn't that religious. And I always just point them to Steve McQueen's own words. He made this tape while he was in Plaza Santa Maria in Mexico about two weeks before his death. And all I say to them is, Let's just go to the tape. And a great job on the production by Greg Hengler. And a special thanks to Marshall Terrell for sharing the story of Steve McQueen to pick up his book, Steve McQueen, The Salvation of an American Icon, and it's by Greg Laurie and Marshall Terrell. Go to your local bookstore or go to Amazon or The Usual Suspects, wherever you get books. And also a special thanks to Pastor Leonard DeWitt, for sharing the story of Steve McQueen's conversion. By the way, he converted to Christianity before the diagnosis of cancer. He met this pilot instructor, and he said, this is how to live a life. And he wanted to know more, and he got curious. And that curiosity led to his conversion. The other remarkable part of this story is McQueen walking out on the set of The Great Escape for six weeks. This got him the reputation for being difficult shortly. But that was soon to be not true, because what happened in the end is he fought for a better version of the role he was about to play, and a writer who made it happen. And in the end, it made the film and made his career, too. And what's most interesting about McQueen's story is that he did love his family. 
and he did love his wife, but he was a broken man, and all he knew was what he knew, and that was what he learned from his father and his mother. His father was never there. His mother was an alcoholic, and that's why we love doing these stories. We don't deify these people when we do talk about stars. We cover their life stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Steve McQueen's story here on Our American Stories. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 